Friday, June 2nd, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. And you can help out this show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. Leave a comment to let other folks, you know, let them know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. Look, we can't let Paul Martino and Moms for Liberty and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pact to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money, and you can help. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Man, all sorts of little glitches this morning. On today's show, yes, the debt limit deal passed in the Senate. Now it awaits Biden's signature. Another D.C. drama fest comes to a close and losers in the deal, of course, are the poor, student debt holders, the IRS, and our planet. Winners include the uber-rich, big oil, and business as usual. Part of the debt limit deal ensures that students will start paying their loans at the end of the summer. And, of course, Manchin will get his pipeline. In a separate attack on student debt holders, the U.S. Senate voted to block Biden's student loan relief package. Biden says he'll veto it, but you know what? The Supreme Court's going to be considering that, so, you know, good chance that's gone, too. The U.S. economy adds 339,000 jobs in May, well beyond the economists' expectations. And that even comes um, despite the fact that you've got the Fed attempting to kind of, like, you know, slow down wages and slow down jobs and make sure that the working people poor pay, you know? Yep, but still happening. And hundreds of Gannett newspaper journalists are set to walk off the job across seven states, right? They're walking off the job in protest of the company's leadership and in deep job cuts. And of course, Gannett, one of the owners of USA Today and of our local Bucks County newspapers. A new report shows that the world's wheat supply may be vulnerable to crisis due to climate change. That's always hurting. Demonstrating once again that our justice system is built for the rich, the Sacklers will not face any personal liability for the billions of dollars that they made fanning the flames of the opioid crisis. Sickens me. Or 
up closer to home, Eugene DePasquale announces that he will run for Attorney General. Yes, indeed. And New Jersey, announced this morning, closes big sections of the New Jersey Turnpike, turnpike due to uh, <clears throat> wildfires. Fine, Barons. That comes on the heels of Philadelphia being covered in smoke and haze this week um, due to the worst wildfires in Nova Scotia's history. Burning out of control. A teen, let's see, Mike Gambone has got a great review in the Bucks County Beacon for a new book for the John Burt Society about the John Burt Society um, by Matthew Dalek. Um, do check it out. It's a great review. Um, I heard an interview with this guy um, last week. Um, so I didn't catch the whole interview yet, um, but I'm definitely going to be reading his book. Um, and Mike's review is, is fantastic. And close things out today, teens in Fort Wayne, Indiana, may indeed be pointing the way after their play, Marion, or The True Tale of Robin Hood, was canceled by their school. The teens raised money and put it on anyways. Marion is a gender-bending, is a, quote, gender-bending take on Sherwood Forest's beloved bandit, and it was canceled by, drum rolls please, I know you already guessed it, because of its LGBTQ content. Yes, here we go. Bands the bands. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community towards calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check it out at the buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or pick it up wherever you get your podcasts. And attention all you gamers out there, the Game In, that's with two ends, is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show and they've got everything from Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. You gotta check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the game in. That's with two ends. You got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. A special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. You check out all his stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two ends at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And coming up on Out to Coop Live, our Monday night show. Yes, I did not have it this past Monday on Memorial Day. I'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but um, uh, we're still got a couple irons in the fire for this coming Monday. Um, but on June 12th at 7 p.m., I welcome Allie Shaw back to the show to talk about her new article, The American Petroleum Institute Loves Pennsylvania as its lobbying shows. Remember, Allie's been on the show before talking about uh, Jeffrey Yass money. Uh, Allie is a Pittsburgh-based research an- a- analysis analyst, sorry, a research analyst 
working on state power mapping program at the grassroots watchdog group Little Sis, and she previously previously spent eight years as an environmental justice organizer at Pittsburgh United and a labor organizer at UFCW Local 1776. Can't wait to talk about her. That is an amazing piece, a great piece, and the kind of stuff that we gotta be paying attention to. Get more. Look, everybody, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight. We need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media and the movement, the movement, the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, sorry for those of you who are looking to turn in, uh, tune in live this morning. Sorry for the little delay. Um, I had some uh, weird tech stuff, and I finally figured it out. Kind of actually, as after we went live, <laughs> as you probably saw if you're watching live. Um, and there was an update on, and that's what I kind of figured out what the issue was. There was an update on. Um, uh, OBS this morning, um, that I kind of, uh, set up and for whatever reason that changed the settings on my audio. So it wasn't feeding my audio in and, uh, I had to ch- uh, finally check it out. So apologize for that. And then on Monday, um, originally remember I was going to talk about this one article, um, by, uh, God, I but it's about the Oath Keepers and climate change. Um, I was going to talk about that on Monday. And just uh, this is where my brain is just not firing on all kind of synapses these days is that I wasn't kind of like piecing together that it was Memorial Day, that it was uh, um, that my kids are going to be home and that we had kind of different plans. So there was all this stuff. And I'm like, what am I doing? And by the time I kind of realized that it was like time for my podcast, I was like, what am there's no way. So I, I apologize for this past Monday um, for those of you who are looking for a show. Um, but this week, um, yeah, so there's that. Um, this week, I got to admit this, you know, I probably should not have started off my day this way. Right. So the, uh, you know, this, the, the news cycle, especially on cable news, which is just becoming more and more of a horror show of like of of despair in my view every day um but uh, you know even the mainstream media you know even the the top line of the headlines of major newspapers and all the stuff is just so focused on the debt limit so focused on the debt crisis and so on and as i said on the show last week I, i've just not been giving too much air to it i mean because what because literally there's like next to nothing next to nothing it felt like we could do right that this was a a classic business as usual kind of right-wing hostage taking republican hostage taking of this debt crisis in order to extract more austerity measures for um you know against say government programs we got like anti-government stuff and it's them way to kind of like slowly kind of you know bite away at stuff there is a solution to this, right? Um, yes, you know, we, the Biden administration could have just gone and paid it off. And because of the constitution that says that you have to, um, the United States will pay all its debts. They, debts, they could have basically the executive's job, right? The executive branch's job is to carry out and execute 
the laws for which Congress has already passed, the legislature has already passed, all of this debt right, has been incurred because of laws that have already been passed. They're goods and services, so to speak, that have already been purchased, and now the bill has come due, so you have to pay the bill. Most of those services, those services that were uh, awarded to cause debt were the massive tax cuts, right, that have been kind of incurred because uh, the Republicans um, and a, a good deal of Democrats want to cater to their uber rich. And, you know, so that we give them all the, the you know, the top one tenth of one percent, all these tax cuts. Um, and then it causes kind of debt because the income's not coming in. Right. And so there's got to be a way out of this crisis. There's only two countries, right? Two people in the kind of industrialized world, so to speak. Um, I still hate that word, but whatever. We're going to use it for now. Um, it's, it's the United States and Denmark are the only ones who kind of have these like, like fake um, self-induced debt, you know, like debt limits. And Denmark's is so like astronomically high that realistically speaking, they're not going to ever hit it, <laughs> right? I mean, just like... With such such amazing things would have to change for them to hit this hit this number, and I forget exactly what what that number is. We're the only ones who do this to ourselves, right? This is kind of like uh, is that because of the absolute like cultish behavior around austerity, right, and government spending and so on. Um, that has been you know the way that we live our lives in this country, and we assume that there's no money, right. You know, I, you know, it's amazing always to kind of watch these politicians, watch them say in one breath, you know, we are the richest, most kind of expansive country in the world. We are kind of the most powerful. We are the, have the most jobs. Our economy is number one, all this kind of stuff. Say that. And then in the very next breath, say, we have no money. We're broke. We got to cut. We got to cut spending. Right. And, you know, the more, you know, and of course it makes total sense, right? The history of neoliberalism, the history of, of austerity. We've got the long practices of shock doctrine, which we've talked about extensively on this, uh, on this program. And on top of that, we got this kind of emergent Christian nationalism, which basically like rewards the rich, you know, and basically says that any kind of like, debt is somehow you're kind of dirty in the minds of God, unless of course you're killing other people like with the Pentagon, then you can spend whatever you want. So you've got this, just, you know, this, this, this bizarre long-term Stockholm syndrome scenario where we're all basically bought the, you know, and again, I'm overstating the case here. Of course, not all of us have bought this, but those in power, right? And those include the Democratic Party leadership have bought the narrative of austerity, right? And refuse to do anything that might kind of like impinge upon the, you know, the the cherished institutions of, of the way things have been done, not even laws, right? So because this like self-induced debt limit, which I need to remind everybody, if I need to remind everybody once again, right? The United States has a fiat currency. In other words, that our government prints its own money and it's backed by itself. Like it's not kind of like pinned to somebody else's currency. Like the government itself issues the currency, right? So we can just basically, and there's provisions with the Federal Reserve, all we have to do is mint this little like trillion dollar coin, 
right? And it has to be in platinum. We could mint two of them if you wanted to and wipe out the debt on the ledgers, right? That's actually, that's actually an option that's available to us. If we're so worried about the way it looks on the books, we can just wipe that out. Why is that the case? That's because the federal government is not a kitchen table. It operates for different rules. Just like our family, for example, right? We do not issue our own currency. We may do it to our kids. We may give them little vouchers to say that, hey, you did this job and you can cash them in later on. We might give them those vouchers to say, oh, for every little thing that you do, I'm going to give you this little voucher and you can keep those vouchers. And then eventually you'll be able to kind of like cash it in for goods or a special treat or something like that. Right. But that's not currency that works outside of our family. State government's the same way. The state government does not issue its own currency, right? So the state government has to basically stay within its budget. And the debts that incurs actually kind of mean something different than they do at the federal level. But at the federal level, that's not the case. Yes, it is true. And I know I said this last week too as well. Yes, it is true, of course, that... You can't just like, you know, they can't just like print money for the sake of printing money, right? Modern monetary theory shows us that kind of, no, as long as that money is being printed to do kind of real tangible things, right? It's not going to lead to inflation. Like that's always the word, inflation, 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 right? That is an outmoded backwards way of looking at debt. It's one that people had fears about in the 1970s because they didn't have all this kind of understanding, I guess, that you can't just issue money for the sake of issue money, right? You actually have to go and you have to do things with it like they did in the 1930s, right? You need money to pay people to build forests or build uh, trails in the forest, right? Or to tend to the forests, right? You need people and you need money to pay the people who are going to build dams or going to build kind of electrical, like, you know, electrical infrastructure, you need money to pay the people who are going to build the interstate to highway system, right? And railroads, right? I mean, that's and so the, the government can say, I'm going to print the money to cover that, to make sure those people have that money so that then they'll kind of eventually pay it, right? Um, they'll, they'll eventually spend it. You can't overdo it. So I don't mean to say that, yeah, just, you know, I don't mean to see it kind of flippantly, but, you know, th that's an option, right? This debt that gets wiped out. But whatever, we, we don't do that, right? We're just kind of caught in this thing. And so this, you know, this this past several weeks, as every single time I I, I turn on like, well, I, I don't really watch cable news that much anymore. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, all the stuff on the debt ceiling and the kind of like, you know, the crisis. If you watch the language, just to read, if you read the headlines in the first few paragraphs of like major newspapers, right, even local newspapers for that matter, is that it's the same language that we see every few years, right? You know, we're at the cliff and we're, we're going to throw the economy off the cliff and blah, 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 blah. And look, I, I, I would love to be able to say that that's just a fantasy because it's not, right? If we stop paying our bills, there's going to be major consequences for the economy. That's a real thing, right? But the conclusion is already written is the problem, right? There's only one of two options is going to happen. Right. Number one, 
is that enough of the extremists, the extremist Republicans in there will basically say, you know what? Let's just let's just do it. Let's kick it off the cliff. We'll see what happens. That'll teach them, right? Because literally, I mean, I do think that there's a bunch of, you know, a bunch of the Republicans now just want to watch stuff burn and crash. So there's enough of those folks, you know. Or because Democratic Party leadership, and in this case, Joe Biden's leadership in the White House, has accepted the premise of austerity, they will see that they will need to negotiate with people that they've called the economic terrorists, right? I mean, this is what drives me insane about leadership of the Democratic Party. They've said this about Trump. They've said this about the Republicans. They said this, you know, the, the, the greatest threat to American democracy, that they're economic terrorists and all this kind of stuff. And then they turn around in the next breath, once again, and say, like, oh, you know, engage with them as, as, as if they're kind of legitimate negotiating partners. And so what that means, so option one, we go off the cliff. Option two is the Democrats give up things which means that we all lose, <laughs> right? Because the things that are being given up are things that are generally there to benefit all of us. Or the most vulnerable among us, <laughs> right? So this ends predictably, you know, I mean, it ended predictably in my view. Right. I, I here's this is this is like one of these uh one of these moments. Let me see if I can uh if I can pull this up real quick. Um I had I thought I had it up already. I'm sorry for this, but um this was just a perfect example in my mind. So I believe this is the one from the let's see. So here's the piece from, uh, um, uh, from the New York Times, right? Just, just, just here's the first. This is from uh, Carl Holsey um, reporting on this. After weeks of a political impasse, tense negotiations, and mounting economic anxiety, the Senate gave final approval on Thursday night to a bipartisan legislation suspending the debt limit, imposing new spending caps, sending it to President Biden, ending the possibility of a calamitous government default. That paragraph right there, is the paragraph that has been written in different ways, like dozens of times as we've kind of constantly faced this kind of, you know, this debt crisis, right? Which is, I mean, I, I read that, I'm like, oh, it's this play again, right? So the approval by the Senate on a 63 to 36 vote brought a close uh, brought a close a political showdown that began brewing as soon as Republicans narrowly won the House in November promising to use their majority and the threat of a default to try to extract spending and policy concessions from Mr. Biden. That's exactly it. That is correctly stated, right? Republicans were in the House, and they promised that they were going to hold us all at gunpoint, right, so that they could extract more policy um, concessions from Mr. Biden. That was their goal. And, of course, they had a specific number that they wanted. They wanted this billion and this trillion and this kind of stuff caught, right? But ultimately, it was just about... Okay, if we can take a trillion dollars away from social programs, we'll do it. But we'll take, you know, we'll take 10 billion instead because it's another bite. 
It's another bite out of the social. It's another bite out of the government. It's another bite out of the thing that we like to call society. So the president refused for months to engage with Speaker um, Kevin McCarthy, but finally did so after the California Republican managed in April to pass a GOP fiscal plan spurring negotiations with the White House that produced the compromises last weekend. On Thursday night, Mr. Biden cheered its passage, promising to sign it as soon as possible and address the nation from the Oval Office on Friday evening. So he'll do that tonight. So remember, Biden was saying, maybe we're going to use, was it the 15th Amendment? Maybe we're going to use, you know, constitutional, our constitutional authority to start paying the debts. We will send Janet Yellen out there. It was all idle threats. It was all idle threats. Because they thought that if they just threatened this thing that, you know, all oh, the Republicans are going to come to the table, come to their senses. They just don't come to their senses ever, ever. So here we go. This is uh, this is Biden. Tonight, senators and both from both parties voted to protect the hard-earned economic progress that we have made uh, and prevent a first-ever default by the United States, he said. No one gets everything they want in a negotiation, but make no mistake, this bipartisan agreement is a big win for our economy and the American people. Really? Is it really? We saved our country from the scourge of default, Senator Chuck Schumer said. Right? This is what this is what counts as a win right now in official Democratic Party politics. This is now writing in The Guardian now. This is from Chuck Schumer. Tonight's vote is a good outcome because Democrats did a very good job taking the worst parts of the Republican plan off the table. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said after the vote, as part of the negotiations over the bill, McCarthy successfully pushed for modest government spending cuts and changes in the work requirements for the supplemental nutrition and um, temporary assistance for needy um, uh, families program, uh, the, the TANF and the um, SNAP. Those changes were deemed insufficient by 31 Republican senators who wanted more, right? But they got it, right? And a bunch of Democrats voted on it too as well. Why? Because they said, oh, we don't want to throw the, the economy off the cliff, which of course which is, was a real possibility. So it wasn't just a threat. So you think about that. Who's got the power there? If the Republicans know that the Democrats are not going to actually use their constitutional authority to just pay the debt and are going to play the game about the debt ceiling, there's only one way to go. Republicans are willing to burn it all down. And so if you don't want to see burn it all down, you basically take the cuts and say, thank you, sir. Look, we did a good job. We did a good job. You pat, each, pat everybody on the back. But in the midst of that, what happens? Well, basically codified it into law that Biden's not going to be able to buy or anybody's going to be able to use that executive authority again to kind of pause student loans, which means it's going to guarantee that student loan payments are going to begin in the fall, which is going to take a hit to our economy. Right. It also means that you, now older, this is the killer, right? Now older Americans over 50 years old, right now have added work requirements to get food stamps Or to qualify for SNAP. That is the same thing. Or to qualify for aid for kids. So 
Who's and so you remember one of the things that was kind of this was actually very interesting that Biden had done um, or Democrats had passed right was more aid that or more more funds were going to go to the IRS right with the specific like earmark specifically to hire more people to track down these kind of billion dollar tax cheats right. Because basically the, the, the IRS did not have the personnel because they've been cut and cut and cut and cut to actually go after some of the worst offenders. The worst offenders are not the people that are kind of like forgetting or kind of not writing down that they, they earned some money on eBay this year. The worst ones are the multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollar, hundreds of million dollars tax sheets that are the richest people in this country. And because they have so much money and they could tie things up in court and they have to fight it, then they just don't get audited and they get to keep their money. So this was a way to start getting some of that money back. And all the studies show that if you invest in tracking down these rich tax sheets, those, the money that you invest in hiring that personnel more than pays for itself. Because the amount of money that is just being left on the table because rich people have so much money to defend themselves, when that starts coming back in, then it starts filling holes. Right. But that money got cut. Right. Notice there's some nuance here. Right. If you want to be really specific about it, there's some nuance here is because the way that that money was allocated to the IRS. Right. The IRS, that money doesn't disappear from the IRS. They're basically there's going to be a it's going to be a lag time. Right. So they're still going to be able to, in the short period of time, they're still going to be able to kind of do some of that. But it's going to end. Right. So it's not going to be like, boom, those people are gone today. No, it's going to take it's going to take a few years for that to disappear. And then in the meantime, what happens, the uber rich just sit there and they sit there to keep on fighting it, keep on fighting it until there's no one left on the other side to fight them. And then they get to keep their money. Right. And in the deal. That big pipeline that mansion wants more money for fossil fuels is going to get built. And no additional money will be going for the climate stuff. So we're taking steps backwards. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm talking about this even now longer than I even wanted to, because it's just like, you know, it's so frustrating to me. It gets me really upset because I think, you know, this goes back to the Steve Bannon stuff, right? Steve Bannon says, flood the zone. Throw so much thing, so, so many things at them, right? Meaning the, the Americans, that they're unable to respond. And this is kind of where we're at, especially when we have a Democratic Party leadership that is not leading the charge in offense, where the expectation is, is they're going to cave. Now, look, <clears throat> there are, are really good things that are happening in the Democratic Party right now, right? It's all happening at the local level, at the regional level. It's happening in these different caucuses, but this takes time, right? So I'm not, I'm not suggesting at all, I want to be 100% clear with anybody listening today, I'm not suggesting at all that anybody just kind of like, you know, oh, just, you know, don't vote or something like this. 
It's like, no, it just shows you all the more reason to keep up the pressure upon the Democratic Party leadership to actually refuse to take part in this abuse. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. And if you had any, you know, question about, you know, what they're willing to do, I mean, look at what the, the Senate just did this week. So this is kind of at the same time all this debt ceiling go on. The, the, US, the Senate votes goes ahead to vote that, um, yes, we're going to block Biden's uh, student loan relief package. Right? Because the House is like, yep, we want to make sure that those students, you know, remember Biden? Biden said, you know, between ten dollars and $20,000 per person. Right? Which is currently on hold now because the Supreme Court says that they want to stick their nose into that one. But the Senate go ahead and pa passes the thing to come from the House and basically says that we're going to kind of uh, stop um, Biden's student loan relief package. Biden says he's going to veto it. But I mean, again, this is like, and, you know, and Democrats voted with them, right? Kristen Sinema, John Tester, and yes, Joe Manchin. So there you go. <clears throat> And, you know, in the meantime, it's like, you know, it, it's like the, the, the kind of war on working people in this country is just astounding to me. Right. Not only do we find the kind of the actual quality, the quality and the content of our jobs kind of diminish. Right. Um, finding this kind of pressures on kind of like, you know, our, our workplaces. We see the federal government because there was inflation. And again, this is like. if the mainstream media would just do its freaking job, right. And basically say, not report this, re this Republican nonsense about inflation coming from government spending. The inflation came from COVID. But the, you know, Democratic leadership is right there with it. The Federal Reserve said, oh, yeah, we got to worry about inflation. And the Democrats, instead of pushing for legislation that would basically stop that inflation by investing in kind of like real jobs, instead of really pushing on that, everyone just kind of hands it over to the Federal Reserve, say, well, you do it. Well, the Federal Reserve could only do a couple things, right? They just deal with like interest rates, right? So what do they do? They do what they always do. Anytime that the, the, the job market gets hot, that you know, workers begin to kind of, uh, you know, uh, their, their wages begin to go up, right? When actually, it, when it's harder to get workers, when the unemployment is really low, right? That means that workers don't have to just take any crappy job and work for any crappy wage. No, they can actually hold out and go to places that are going to pay them well, what they deserve. So wages start to go up. The Federal Reserve goes, oh, no, that's going to cause inflation. Everybody's got to remain poor. Like, I mean, look, I mean, look at what goes on in the rest of the world. I mean, it's just like it's astounding that our like our educational system, our media system and everything like this looks at what we like. We are here as if this is natural. We have examples like literally to our north, right, to our south, like across the ocean. I mean, of where you have advanced countries that are doing the same thing. But guess what? They've got stable job markets. They kind of got high wages and their economy hasn't kind of fallen into kind of complete utter collapse and the end of the world is at the, at, at the door. No. But because we have this closed system that we only think about America, right? That we think that, oh, workers getting paid well is bad. 
And you have a media that constantly basically says, you need to think about the price of your hamburger, <laughs> right? If that goes up by 25, 25 cents, oh my God, that could go up by 25 cents because those workers are making a living wage. Oh my God. So those workers must, must stay in poverty so that you can have your, I mean, <clears throat> it's just mentality all the time. It's like, <clears throat> if I have something good, Or if you have, let's put it this way, if you have something good, like say you have good health insurance, it's like our our kind of whole discourse system, our whole media system is geared towards getting people to look at your good health insurance to resent you for it and demand that you come down to the crappy health insurance. Right. So if I have bad health insurance and you have good health insurance, I'm supposed to resent you, get angry at you and say, hey, if I have to have crap, crappy health insurance, then you do, too. You shouldn't get that. But we don't say that to the super rich. We only say that to other people that are in our neighborhood, in our communities, in, the, in our, our world like that. Instead of saying, hey. Now, this is, the, the, the con this is like the union movement, right? The union movement says, hey, those people have good health insurance, right? And they've got job protections, right? How did they get that? Oh, they formed a union. They got together and they bargained for their contract. So, hey, instead of saying, I I'm going to hate the union, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the union and say, how do we do that? Can you help us do that too? Raise up the boats, not sink everybody. That should be our demand in our communities and our politics too as well. But, <clears throat> and to add insult to injury, right? This is kind of what we just, just kind of came out here is I, um, we see that uh, journalists uh, uh, and for the Gannett newspapers um, are looking to walk off the job, right? Why? Well, you've basically got, so I'll just read this. this is from the Washington Post. So journalists for the largest newspaper chain in the country will walk off the job next week in a series of strikes staged in part to protest the leadership of the company, company's chief executive. Hundreds of staffers for 24 Gannett newspapers, including the Arizona Republic, the Austin American Statesman, and the Palm Beach Post, say they will not report to work for a day or two starting Monday, forfeiting pay and foregoing assignments ranging from city council meetings to high school sports championships. Oh, oh, oh. Right. The Gannett walkout expected to be the largest in the newspaper's changed history will be the just uh, will be the just latest labor protest of this kind to hit America newsroom in recent months. In December, more than 1000 New York Times staffers walked off the job for a day in one of the most dramatic labor disputes in the, com the company's history. And on Friday, workers in the digital media company Insider say that they will go on an indefinite strike if their demands on health care benefits and contract negotiations are not met. Gannett walkouts follow a smaller protest in November when journalists at 14 of the company's newsrooms walked off the job protesting cuts, job cuts, and calling for increased wages. What did that look like? Well, Gannett last summer froze hundreds of positions and laid off 400 employees, right, some of whom were the last remaining reporters at their newspapers after a dismal financial quarter. Gannett has offered voluntary buyouts and in December laid off 6% of its roughly 3,400-person news staff. And it goes on. And we've talked about this extensively too as well. It's one of the reasons why the Bucks County Beacon exists. 
right, is because Gannett Newspapers, right, Gannett, who now owns the Bucks County, uh, Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer, right, um, I mean, has cut staff, right? But they weren't the first ones. They're just ones who are doing it most ruthlessly and kind of to the most amount of papers, right? This has been happening in the newsrooms for a long time. So you've got fewer and fewer amount of people reporting, right? They're unable to do the kind of critical or the critical work that is necessary in order to hold the people in power accountable, which is what journalism is supposed to do. And they have to be afraid of their jobs because they're, you know, everyone else around them is getting cut and losing their jobs. So it makes for tame reporters. Crazy. But in other news, um, well, this is lack of accountability. Once again, I said like the Sacklers were not going to face any personal liability for the billions they made in uh, fanning the flames of the opioid crisis. Right. That's remarkable. This is the piece from the New York Times. Members of the Sackler family, the billionaire owners of Purdue Pharma, will receive full immunity from all civil legal claims, current and future, over their role in the company's prescription opioid business, a federal appeals court panel ruled on Tuesday. The ruling gives the family the sweeping protection it has been demanding for years in exchange for a payment of up to $6 billion of the family's fortune to help address the ongoing ravages of the opioid crisis. It removes a major hurdle for the money, plus the company's initial outlay of $500 million to be dispensed in states and communities for addiction treatment and prevention programs needs to be soared during the epidemic that has grown far beyond the abuse of Purdue's signature prescription painkiller drug, OxyContin. Unless it successfully appealed to the Supreme Court, an unlikely prospect legal expert said, the new ruling will close the door on Purdue's hotly contested bankruptcy restructuring, which began nearly four years ago. The bankruptcy is at the core of a plan intended to resolve thousands of opioid cases against the company nationwide, plus roughly 400 against individual Sackler family members. So all those ones against the individual Sackler members go away. Uh, Sackler members go away. <clears throat> and you could say, well, you know what? <clears throat> they shouldn't have to pay because the company, no, they personally <laughs> were responsible they knew what they were doing with flooding the market market um, with opioids, with OxyContin. They knew what the problems were. They knew the levels of addiction, and they kept on doing it so they could make more money. And to say that we should somehow protect them from making those ill-gotten gains is crazy to me. You don't protect the families of the mob, right? We don't have our laws don't say like, okay, well that look that money, yeah, they killed a bunch of people and they uh you know they they you know they they were committing fraud and they were kind of lying and they were stealing. Um and so we recognize that those mob bosses don't deserve to have their money, so we're gonna take it away from them. But if you form a multi billion dollar corporation, right, and you kind of have all the best lawyers in the world, right, you can keep your billions. We're just going to work to wall you off so that you are personally protected, right? And then you can kind of, uh, you can pay it in the way that you want. You can choose your penalty as opposed to the penalty being extracted from you. I mean, whatever. And final stuff in the kind of, in the large picture here. Um, there's a new report that came out um, 
that was basically focusing on uh, sections of the Midwest and in China, like two of the areas of the world that have some of the largest wheat production, right? Um, you would have to throw in there Ukraine, but Ukraine, of course, is in the middle of a kind of ongoing war. Um, but um, <clears throat> I'll read this intro to this from NBC News. Extreme heat waves and drought due to climate change have the potential to shock the global food supply and send prices soaring, according to a new study. The research, published Friday in the journal NPJ Climate and Atmospheric Science, assesses a worst-case scenario in which extreme weather hits the two breadbasket regions in the same year, hammering winter wheat crops in both the U.S. Midwest and in northern China. Right? So, again, this is not to say this is going to happen, but it's more likely, increasingly more likely to happen. Right. So why they're focusing on winter wheat? Well, winter wheat is planted in the fall, goes dormant in winter cold, and it gets harvested in the early summer. The study found that extreme weather conditions would push those um, wheat crops beyond their uh, physiological tolerances and become more likely, uh, that are becoming more likely. If such weather affected multiple regions at once, a scenario possible in today's climate, it would stress the global food system in dangerous ways. Um, Aaron Coughlin de Perez, the study's lead author and climate scientist and associate professor at Tufts University, said the research was meant to show political leaders and disaster responders the degree to which critical crops are, are under threat so that they can prepare accordingly for such a crisis. Quote, we're suffering from a failure of imagination in terms of what this could look like, um, um, Coughlin de Perez said. Quote, the whole point of imagining these serious consequences, we could take action to prevent them to build a more resilient system. Already, climate change is disrupting food production across the globe. The Horn of Africa, for example, suffered several years of drought beginning in 2020 that killed livestock and wiped out crops. And the World Weather Attribution Network determined climate change is responsible for that drought, which left more than 4 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. Right? And it goes on. So I, I wanted to include this one today in you know, part because, yes, it's a little doom and gloomy, right? I get it. But what this the scientists, like... Aaron Coughlin de Perez said was that this is we're doing this right so that people know so that we can take action ahead of time before this collapses right it goes right back to the whole political will thing right it's like this is really important and, you know, it puts it back just right where we started from today. It's about that political will. Right? And, and, and business as usual is just not doing it, folks. Like, business as usual is not doing it. So, there we have it. I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about a couple stories. And uh, then we'll kind of be thinking about the weekend as we face the kind of hottest day of the year so far today. Um, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Rage and Chicken. I want to remind you, you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. We'll be right back after this quick I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1916. That was the day that John Greena, an Italian immigrant miner, walked out of the St. James Mine in Aurora, Minnesota. The mine was part of the Mesabi Iron Range, the richest deposit of iron ore in the United States. 
The Mesabi Range takes its name from an Ojibwe word meaning Great Mountain. John Greena was frustrated with the long hours and low pay in the mines. Soon, 8,000 miners joined him on strike. The strike was led by the industrial workers of the world. The workers demanded an end to the contract labor system. Under this system, they were paid for the amount of iron ore they mined instead of a daily wage. This meant that those assigned to easier-to-work mines earned more. To get a good assignment, you often had to bribe the manager with gifts. The workers went on strike to end this system and to fight for the eight-hour day. But the mine owners were determined not to give in. They brought in hundreds of armed guards to oppose the strikers. One miner was killed in a fight at the Oliver Mining Company. At the funeral, mourners marched under a banner that read, Murdered by Oliver Gunman. Organizers for the IWW union were jailed. Without the leadership, by September, the strike had ended. Although the strike failed to reach a formal settlement, most of the mines did institute pay raises and the eight-hour day. From Monongahela Valley to the Masabi Iron Range to the coal mines of Appalachia The story's always the same For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2 Once I made you rich enough Rich enough to forget my name Hey everybody, everybody, welcome back, welcome back. Um, yeah, like I said, today it's supposed to be Fort's forecast to go up to uh, 90-something today, I believe. Uh, let's see what it says. Uh, current forecast has it for... Let's see. Why isn't it given to the actual forecast? Uh, 91, right? It's not going to be 94 like the other one does. But if I look up at my phone, right, my phone says, well, we're already at 86, right? And so we're going to go up to what today? Let's see. What do we got? I know this is fascinating. 93, right, according to this one site. So we'll see. So it's going to be the hottest day of the year. And then uh, then tomorrow it's going to, the temperature is going to go down to the 70s again. So it's been this up and down. It's been a weird weather week here in the east, uh, for sure. Uh, weather spring should say been very cool uh, we had a lot of rain early and then then it's like then we haven't had rain in quite some time everything's drying out real bad um but you know hard for the course uh anyways a couple things here uh eugene de pasquale says uh he will run for attorney general um this of course is uh, the seat that was left vacant by uh josh shapiro when he kind of stepped down for that to run for governor um so uh, that's going to be um, that'll be, I think, a good race. He's the, you know, there's a bunch of people are expected to kind of um, to jump in um, for that race, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, you know, he did some great work as Auditor General, uh, if you recall, during the Wolf administration, um, basically cracking down on what was happening with schools, and you know, uh, did a super job there. So we're going to see where this goes um, goes from here. His reports and his research and the way that he used that office were fantastic. We're going to see how he's going to kind of um, pivot that into uh, this next statewide race um, that he won. 
or he just ran this last year to run against Scott Perry to try to get rid of Scott Perry in the house. But you know, he lost that race by, I think, was like six percentage points or something like this. Um, but that was in a super red district. Um, and uh, De Pasquale is, you know, he's won statewide uh, several times. So this is going to be a good deal. Um, I, I just, this came in this morning. I was actually looking for, you, you know, there's, well, let me flip this, flip it around. So uh, you probably saw this if you're, you know, watching news anywhere, but Philadelphia was completely covered in haze um, for parts of this week um, due to these uh, literally unprecedented wildfires in Nova Scotia. Um, now, Nova Scotia, they've had wildfires before, but this is, um, it like far exceeds anything that they've, they've ever, um, they've ever experienced before. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, there's people in Nova Scotia. I mean, it, well, a couple of things that are remarkable, right? I mean, so the people in Nova Scotia, number one, are having to flee their homes, um, that they're, they can't believe what's going on here. So here, here's the latest, right? Um, what's happening in actually Nova Scotia. Oh, I'm not going to read this one. Got to love paywalls, right? Um, ba, 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 that was a brand new one. So let's see. So here it is. Uh, officials say the fire in the southern tip of the province has burned about um, 20,000 hectares with flames reaching as high as 100 meters in height. This is from the BBC. Um, meanwhile, another fire that has forced the evacuations of thousands near Halifax, the largest city, continues to burn. The wildfire smoke has traveled south with air quality warnings in the United States. And as of Thursday morning, Nova Scotia officials said the massive fire in Shelburne County in the south of the province is still burning. No fatalities or injuries have been reported, but about 50 homes have been destroyed as a result of the fire. Right. David Rockwood, a spokesperson for the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources, told reporters on a Wednesday that the fire appears to be very fast moving. And he said that firefighters have spotted flames as, as tall as, you know, 60 to um, 90 meters. It's significantly larger than the average seen during the entire fire, fire season in Nova Scotia, uh, said Lucas uh, Breha, a wild, wildfire researcher with the Canadian Forest Service. Quote, last year was quite high at just about over 3,000 hectares burned, Mr. Um, Brayhout told the BBC. Shelburne County fire, by comparison, is more than five times that size. So that one fire is before five times the size of the one that was there um, or the whole season last year, just to give you that kind of sense. And so that's, you know, again, that's, we've also seen wildfires out in the uh, Canadian West, right? I believe Alberta or Manitoba, we've seen the fires burning out there too as well. And this is early in the season, right? Um, that's how dry it has been um, up in Northern Canada, right? We saw this, the smoke from the Nova Scotia fires were so, was so extensive that, you know, that Philadelphia was covered. Philadelphia and large sections of New Jersey were covered with smoke. Um, there were haze warnings, air quality war um, warnings that were out um, due to the uh, smoke coming from the Nova Scotia fire. You probably remember, was it last year or two years ago, um, when the Canadian fires were burning so strongly that um, our whole region kind of throughout Pennsylvania, um, large kind of stretches of Pennsylvania at least, we're all in this kind of weird orange haze because the smoke um, from the California fires had reached us so much. So again, it's like earth is screaming warning, right? <laughs> well, just this morning, so I was going to look up stuff for that, you know, for that Nova Scotia fire, just so I had it kind of ready and up and um, found this morning, the garden state parkway um, 
was uh, closed. Um, well, actually, it was just updated. So it was just updated. It is now back open. But the Garden State Parkway had been closed um, this morning um, between exits 38 and 63 um, because the wildfires that are burning in, um, uh, what is it, the Allen Road wildfire in Bass River State Forest in Burlington County, New Jersey, uh, was burning um, so extensively and wildly because everything like there is tinder right now, too, as well. <clears throat> so they said that um, as of when I was starting for today, this uh, the close the closures were still there. They have since been um, roads have been reopened, um, but those you know it's happening right down the road as well as um, to our with our neighbors to the north. Um, so that's crazy. Uh, I definitely want to give a plug for uh, this awesome review of Math Dalek's um, book Birchers: How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. As I said, I heard her interview with um, uh, part of the interview. I haven't finished the interview yet with um, uh, Matthew Dalek here. But um, <clears throat> yesterday, uh, Mike Gambone, Dr. Mike Gambone from Kutztown University, friend of mine, um, he had another book review in the Bucks County Beacon um, of this book. Um, it's a great review. Um, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, 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 just a little preview of Mike's introduction for here, but I want you to go and go check it out. So here's the beginning of Matthew Dalek's Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right is a compelling treatment of the origins, evolution, and integration of a fringe movement into the heart of American conservative politics. Throughout, the author draws many immediate parallels between the John Birch Society and any number of contemporary right-wing actors. The society was pessimistic about the condition of the country and the world, entertaining and, quote, Armageddon-like sensibility, unquote, about events. The stakes were enormous. Birchers saw a profound moral rot affecting the country, the product of liberal policies, Supreme Court decisions that struck down segregation and prayer in public schools, and a general decline of social values. So you can see the relevance of this book already. I mean, this is essentially what we're hearing right now in all these school board wars, in all these kind of right-wing politics, in the QAnon conspiracies, um, this kind of extreme right in this country, um, this thread has deep roots, right? Um, and so it's great to see this uh, making it in the pages of the Bucks County Beacon. And I do uh, suggest you go check that out. Um, there'll be a link in today's show notes. Um, just go to the Bucks County Beacon, and Mike's piece is called To Understand Groups Like Moms for Liberty and the Republican Party's MAGA Base, Look to the John Birch Society. Go check it out. Um, last thing I want to kind of uh, jump on today was I just thought this was a cool story, right? And I, I swear to God, I'm trying to find places and find times where we can actually focus on some victories, right, as opposed to just the um, um, just the horrors of our world these days, right? So here's one of them. Um, so, uh, you know, it comes in the midst of the kind of fights that we're seeing kind of in our schools and all this. But this took place in Fort Wayne, Indiana. All right. So I, I just want to read a bit from this because it was truly, um, I think, points in a direction similar. If you listen to the last podcast on the Beacon, uh, the Beacon's podcast, The Signal, um, talk for the folks from Central York High School, the ones that fought back the book ban. Um, it's a very similar kind of message, I think. So I'll set this up with a Washington Post article. This is from uh, uh, Hannah Natanson. So, okay, this is Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, Sydney, Sydney Knipp, or Nip, 16, tiptoed to stages 
stage's edge and peered around the black curtain at the nearly 1,500 people waiting for the play to start. It was the largest audience she had ever seen. In a few minutes, Sydney was supposed to stride before them, braid streaming, to deliver the opening monologue as Alana Dale in, quote, this is the name of the play, Marion or the True Tale of Robin Hood, a gender-bending take on Sherwood Forest's beloved bandit. Dotted among the crowd, Sydney saw were security personnel in bulletproof vests. At the entrance, theatergoers were submitting to bag checks and a metal detector wand. Behind Sydney stood Fia, her 14-year-old sister, costume as Mulch the Miller's son, or Mu- yeah, Much the Miller's son. Sydney and Fia and their characters were the reason for the security. The reason this play was happening not at a school, but at an outdoor theater in the girl's hometown. Alana confessed her love for a woman in the 16th scene. Much declares they are, they are non-binary two scenes later. The LGBTQ storylines drew complaints from parents spurring Carroll High School to cancel Marion in February out of concern out of a concern for student safety. But the cast of two dozen teenagers decided to put the play on anyways. Now on a chilly evening in late May, after raising almost eighty-four thousand dollars, booking Fullinger Theater and a whirling through two and a half weeks of late night rehearsals, squeezed between advanced placement exams and finals, it was opening night for a show adults had been had warned them not to do. That's awesome. So you know this whole, uh, you know, I don't want to go into the, the negative aspects of, of uh, what the story behind it. I'll let you, you know, I'll go check out the story. It's in the Washington Post it's called Their High School Canceled an LGBTQ Play. These teens put it on anyway. It's a great story um, and reminds us, I think, and I think these stories are important to remind us over and over again that being silent and being quiet never changes anything, Right. It feels like protection. It can feel like protection in the short term, but in the long term, right, it just leads to more victories for the fascists, right? So kudos to those folks um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, and uh, they have got a great, um, uh, Washington Post has got a great little video that goes along with this to kind of introduce you to the characters, um, introduce you to some of the kids that put on this thing, so do check it out. Anyways, I'm going to call it at that today, everybody. Um, I thank for those of you who are tuning in and everyone who tunes in on our podcast. I um, hope you're enjoying this uh, really hot uh, day, at least in this southeast Pennsylvania area. And I wish you a good week ahead. Um, I'll keep you posted if we finally get anybody. Uh, if we get somebody that um, for a Monday show, I'll let you know. Um, if, if not, I'll let you know what we're going to be doing. Uh, we might go back to that, um, the Oath Keepers and the Climate Chaos piece, um, because I do think that was an important piece to check out. Um, but I'll keep you posted. And remember, on June 12th, on Monday, June 12th, uh, we'll have an Ali Shaw back on the show to talk about the ways that the American Petroleum Institute is funneling money into Pennsylvania, seeing it as a key battleground state in its own pursuits of further profit and the destruction of our planet. All right. So this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. I want to thank you for all your help. Thank you for all of our patrons and all those folks who tweet us, uh, tweet us out, kind of uh, share the show, um, give us feedback. Uh, we appreciate you all and want to thank you. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, until next time, everybody. There are no people in the future. See ya. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call.